For those that were here last week, I was not here last week. I took off. And let it be a lesson to all of you, if you decide to take off on a Sunday, they make you preach the next Sunday. So, um, <clears throat> so maybe this is, it's either my punishment or yours. I'm not sure which, but... That's right. Um, so as, as Brian said, we're going through the Gospel of John, as you all know, if you've been here at all this year. Um, and today we are going to be finishing chapter 4. So if you do the math, 4 goes into 25 times, there's 21 chapters, so you're almost a fifth of the way through the book. So for those that are loving it, maybe that's Bad news for those that are ready to move on, you're, you're getting there, okay? So, and today we're going to be, uh, we're looking at a story about the, ro- the royal official's son who is healed. But I want to start back at the verse that Pastor Brian started this whole series with back in the beginning of January. He did a sermon on John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. So let me read it to you again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was the scripture that started this whole study of John. In fact, uh, so we're, we're, we're looking at um, one of the seven signs of Jesus. Remember when we talked about the turning the water into wine, that was the first of seven signs in the book of John. In fact, um, many people refer to the first 12 chapters of John as the book of signs because it goes through these seven signs. But I want to look at why, again, these signs are recorded. If you don't mind going back to that scripture really quick. Um, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence, and go to the next one, 31, if you don't mind. It says, but these are written that you what? Why are they written? That you may believe and that you may have life, right? If I were to simplify it, obviously, it's all about Jesus and Messiah there, but believe and have life. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this story. Now, the other thing I wanted to do, since we're talking about signs, is actually look at a definition of signs, um, or what a sign is. I know that we all kind of have an idea, but I thought, well, let me just look it up and see what it says. And it was interesting. So is that going to be stuck there the whole time, the background? Um, Okay, well, we'll get that fixed here in a minute. Um, When I Googled sign, the first definition that came up, now, not that Google is the expert on all definitions, but um, it was just interesting. This was the very first definition that came up. It said, an object, quality, event, or entity whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. Let me read that again. An object, quality, event, or entity whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. In the upper right corner, 
you can click on that and it will kill the background. Um, there's some, but there you go. Now you can just click on the signs thing again and it should be good. There you go. Um, so it's basically something that indicates the presence of something else. A natural sign bears a causal relation to its object. For instance, thunder is a sign of a storm. Or a medical, symptom, medical symptoms are signs of a disease. Another example would be flowers are often given as a sign of affection. In our case, miracles are often a sign of God or the Messiah. Another interesting definition that popped up when I Googled this was the difference between a sign and a symptom in, medical, in the medical field. I don't know how many of you are doctors or nurses, maybe have studied this. This was new to me. But a sign is the effect of a health problem that can be observed by someone else. A symptom is an effect noticed and experienced only by the patient. So a sign is something that's observed by others. When a doctor observes someone, he's not observing the symptoms, he's observing the signs. Only the patient experiences the symptoms. That's why the doctor will say, what symptoms are you having? Because it's only the patient that can describe those. I think this is a good example of these miracles. Usually when you think of miracles, they're meant for the benefit of the person receiving the miracle. But these seven signs are meant for more than just the recipient of the miracle. They point to the presence or existence of something else, of Jesus, the Messiah. So let's keep those things in mind as we read the next portion of John, John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he, meaning Jesus, so he had just been at the, with the woman of the well, right, in Samaria. After the two days staying there, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more... He visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to Judea and Galilee. This is God's word for God's people. Hear it. 
believe it, and live. Let us pray. Lord God, we just ask that your word come alive to us, Lord. Just, in, just like in John chapter 1 where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Lord. Lord, we pray that this word comes alive in us, that these signs point to you, Lord, that they bring us to belief in the same way that it brought the official and his whole family to believe, Lord. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to know you better. Help us to be your faithful people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. So, we're going to do kind of a Bible study, kind of break down. We're going to go through the story verse by verse. That's a lot of times my style, for better or worse. So, that's what we're going to do today. So, I want to look at the beginning, uh, those first couple of verses. Um, after the two days, he left for Galilee. And then the next one is in parentheses. He says, now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then the next one, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Does verse 44 in parentheses seem a little out of place? It says he left, he went to Galilee, they welcomed him. But in the middle, there's this little thing that's like, but he's not welcome in his own town and in his own area, because he's from Galilee. Nazareth, where he grew up, is in the region of Galilee. So why would Jesus throw that in there? I mean, it says that they welcomed him. They saw what he did in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. In fact, the Passover festival, the Passover is one night, but the festival is a week long. It's often also referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there was lots of time for people to see and experience Jesus. So why is this mentioned? Why is this, this caveat or this, uh, um, I don't, not thinking the word, but why did he throw that in there? Well, let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever left a small town or maybe uh, even your own family? You kind of left your family for a while and you went away. And when you come, and, and while you're gone, you grow, you change, you have new life experiences. But when you come back, the people expect you to be the same person. You may not see things the same as you used to, but maybe they haven't changed. They treat you as though you haven't changed. And who are you to come back and start changing the status quo? It's hard sometimes for people to see the new you, how God may have changed you or called you to something new. So here Jesus comes back, this, this guy who I remember when you were so tall, you were the kid who never got into trouble, always seemed to do right, and now all of a sudden you're doing stuff that's making waves for good or for bad, kind of stirring things up. Jesus is quoting that scripture. They're talking about the fact that prophets are never welcome in their own town because people sometimes have a hard time seeing the new you, what has changed about you. Jesus also kind of addressed something similar to this in John chapter 2. We read this, uh, or we, we 
talked about John chapter 2 a few Sundays ago, but after he turns the water to wine, he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is what he's talking about. The people saw these signs at the uh, Passover festival. And at the end of chapter 2, it says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Again, it's this weird thing of these people saw the miracles, they believed in his name, but yet there's this thing of Jesus is going, warning, caution. Why is he doing that? Well, he knows people's hearts, and he knows that people, including you and I, chase after miracles, chase after the quick fixes without entering into a meaningful relationship. He knows that people want to see the miracles, but they don't always want to see God. They want the power, but not the person. Later on in John, we'll read about the feeding of the 5,000. And right after that, Jesus goes to a new location, and all these people follow him. And he says, you're only here because you want a free meal. He knows that the people are there because they want to be entertained. They want their needs met. But they don't. They want the power, not the person. And we see this kind of response from Jesus again as we read this royal official, because he comes, he hears about Jesus coming to Cana and this royal official. And now, when you, when you hear royal official, you just got to think mayor, governor, congressperson. This is, this is a government official is what this is, someone that is involved with the king or the, the king's leadership. So this is someone who usually gets a level of respect and prestige wherever he goes. But it says, he heard about Jesus, he goes and finds him, and he begs. Now, this is a bit unbecoming of what you would think of a government official. This person probably has some sort of entourage with him wherever he goes, and yet he comes to Jesus and begs. Probably he's used to people doing the opposite, people coming to him and begging for things. So clearly, he is desperate. So Jesus, being the compassionate person, goes and says, what can I do for you, child? No, that's not what he does. He has a strange response. It's almost harsh. Here, this man is desperate. He's begging him. He's definitely out of his element in doing that. And he gives him a response that's almost unrelated to the request. He says, if you don't, if you, if you don't see miracles, you won't believe, basically, is what he says. Let me, uh, let me pull up my Bible and read it to you again. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. I planned on having my Bible with me so I could have them side by side. And the one thing I forgot is I'm going to be preaching this morning is my Bible, so I'm having to bounce back and forth on my iPad. Now, in the original Greek, the word you is plural. It's not singular. So Jesus isn't just speaking to this royal official. I, as many of you know, I used to live in Tennessee for 20 plus years. So 
down there, they'd say, y'all. So basically, Jesus saying, if y'all don't see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Jesus' response isn't just meant for the official. In fact, it may not even really be for the official at all. It was meant for the bystanders, for the crowd. And I would imagine being a government official, he probably had bystanders wherever he went. So Jesus is addressing the crowd, not the official. Remember the definition of sign? It's something for others to see. Jesus is challenging their focus. Are they focused on themselves, their problems, how a miracle will help them, or maybe even just entertain them? Or are they focused on knowing the creator of the world and the savior of their souls? Are they seeking Jesus to fix my problem and give me what I want? Or are they willing to get to know the heart of the Father from whom all blessings flow. Psalm 103.7, which I believe we have, says this, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Remember, Moses was in relationship with God. There was a point when he even asked to see God's glory, to see God face to face. He sought God. He was in relationship with him. But the people went from one mighty act to the other, often grumbling in between. Do you see the difference? Moses sought the ways of God, and so he had a relationship with him. And the miracle powers flew through him, or flowed through him because of that. But the people only sought the mighty acts of God. And those are temporary. They come and go. So why do we, as believers, who have the word of God to teach us these things, why do we keep asking for crumbs when you and I are invited to the table to dine in the Lord's company? Why do we, just like these people, oftentimes Seek a miracle for God from God and not seek God himself. But as we keep reading, this official is clearly desperate and he seems unfazed by Jesus' remark. And maybe it's because he realizes that Jesus really wasn't speaking to him. Maybe it's because he didn't get an answer. So he still is there begging, please come heal my son. And in verse 50, Jesus finally answers his question. He says, go, your son will live. Now, every time in the past I've read this scripture, it, is, it has come across a bit dismissive. It's, to me, it's always seemed like, all right, already, I'll do it. Just leave me alone. If, if you'll leave, if, if I promise to do this, will you leave me alone? Now, maybe I'm the only one who's read that, but because his previous statement seemed so harsh, I kind of interpreted him saying it that way as well. It's like, if you guys won't, don't see miracles, you won't believe. Go, your son will live. Next. But now that you know that he's really not speaking to the officials, maybe it wasn't like that at all. Maybe Jesus walked up to this man, put his hands on his shoulders, looked him in the eye, 
and said, go, your son will live. In fact, in the original Greek, the word go there means go on your way or go about your business. It doesn't mean get out of my sight. Jesus is saying, you have nothing to worry about. Don't stress. Go about your day. Everything will be okay. Don't worry. Be happy. The official's response, I think, is also pretty amazing. Because the scripture says the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And I think this is huge. Because how, how many of us are really comfortable with taking Jesus at his word? Jesus said, I will always be with you to the end of the age. But do we really take him at his word and believe that? I think sometimes it is easier to believe in the miracles because you see something miraculous right in front of you. And it's definitely easy to kind of believe those things when you're in the presence of Jesus or in the presence of other believers or in some quote-unquote spiritual place like a church. But if you have to take that word and you have to step out that door, if you have to step away from the perceived or the clear presence of Jesus, and you head back out on that dusty road back to where you came from, Jesus' words may still ring in your ears, but do you, really, do you really feel his presence or do you feel far away from his presence? When he departed, he was truly walking out in faith that his son would be okay. Airline pilots have this point of no return where when a plane is taking off, if you're in, ever in a cockpit, you might hear a co-pilot or a captain call out V1. Now, V1 means the point of no return. See, as the airplane accelerates toward the end of the runway, the pilot must decide if the plane is moving fast enough to safely take off. The pilot holds the throttle as the plane approaches the V1 speed so that the takeoff can be aborted if something goes wrong. However, after the plane reaches V1 speed, the plane absolutely has to take off. It is the point of no return. And I think when this man decided to believe what Jesus said and walk away, he hit V1. He hit the point of no return. He was truly leaving his son's fate in Jesus' hands, or maybe more, a better way of saying it is in Jesus' words. As Jesus said, go, your son will live. So what happens? He's heading back home as we read in verse one, and it says his servants met him on the road. So they were coming to him to bring news as he was traveling back home to Capernaum. Now, what do you think went through his mind as he saw his servants from a distance coming to him? Probably very quickly. Say what? Could be. I mean, at least I would think there'd be a lump in his throat where he's thinking, I know what Jesus said, but what if he was wrong? 
What if I was wrong not to insist that he come with me? I would imagine those few seconds were probably a pretty stressful, terrifying time. Are they bringing good news or bad? But here they show up with good news. But in the next verse, verse 52, he inquires as to the time when the son was getting, when he got better. And I think this is interesting. I mean, it could have just been in natural conversation. Oh, man, it's amazing. When did he get better? It's like blah, blah, blah. Or it could have been, was this really Jesus? Did he actually still kind of doubt? Could this be a coincidence? Maybe his son started getting better the day he left Capernaum before he even saw Jesus. Is this really God at work? Well, of course, we read that they explain when it happened, and it happens to be the exact hour that Jesus told him, your son will live. So what he thought maybe is just a coincidence, he realizes, no, I think not. It's a God incident. And I've used that word a lot. You've probably heard me say that. But the word, I've shared this before, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for coincident because they don't believe that things just happen by accident. You've probably heard the phrase, the devil is in the details, but I would argue, no, God is in the details in every last one. So I want to share a story with you about a sign or a miracle that God did in our lives It's not anything grandiose like healing someone's son who's on the edge of death. But just to kind of show you that there are no coincidences and that God is at work. We sang this morning that even though I may not see you or feel you, you are working. In fact, we confessed this morning, you know, forgive us when we don't see you at work. Well, I understand the sentiment of that, and there are times that we are completely ignorant of God's work around us. But I also believe that there are times that God is at work that we're not supposed to know yet. And this story is one of those stories. And God asks us to be faithful and to walk. And we will see those things will be revealed to us, but sometimes we don't know that God is working until later on. So most of you know that I uh, moved up here, I I grew up here, but I had moved away to Nashville, Tennessee, lived there for 22 years. And I was uh, considering a career change and considering moving back here to Bloomington. Um, And it was a very difficult decision because we loved Nashville. Um, You know, half my life had been spent in Nashville, a lot of friends there. I was walking away from a career that I loved. So it was a very difficult decision. And it was even harder, I think, for my wife. She had lived there longer. And I was at least moving back to my hometown where I had a lot of family, but she was moving away from her family. In particular, she was moving away from her mother who had been a missionary in Africa for 18 years. So for 18 years of her adult life, she hardly saw her mom, and her mom had finally retired and moved back home. 
And just a handful of years later, we're looking to move away. So it was a difficult time. It was a difficult decision. And God gave me a sign. I won't go into a lot of the details about it. The, the whole story, there were sign after sign after sign after sign. And it's pretty amazing, but it's for another sermon. But the short version is, is that after I applied for a job up here, I started seeing Illinois license plates as I drive around town. Now, little did I know, I thought it was God, but it was really just the fact that everybody from Illinois is moving out of the state, retiring in Tennessee. <laughs> but I kid you not, from the beginning of July to the end of September, every single day, I would see a car with an Illinois license plate. It'd be the end of the day, and I'd be like, oh, I didn't see one today, but oh, I got to run to the grocery store and get milk. Pull into the parking lot, there's a car with an Illinois license plate. Every single day. And there were other things too. So I had this sign that God was kind of speaking to me saying, you know, this, this is the move that you need to make. But my wife was really struggling. She was moving away from her family, as I said, and she didn't get such a sign like that. So one day, I believe it was September, um, she was... She just dropped off her daughter at school. She was driving home, and she was just praying, arguing, wrestling with God, whatever you want to call it, just saying, God, I need to know what to do because I'm having a hard time with this. I, I need a sign. I need something to know that this is really the right move. So she comes in, uh, she pulls into the driveway, and we had a concrete patio in the backyard, or in the back of the house, and it had started to crack in lots of places. Not just crack, but like shift to where it was like uneven. And we had these concrete steps that went up to a back door of the house. Well, apparently concrete was cheap in the 70s when the house was built, because instead of building like a frame and kind of concreting over it or whatever, they literally poured the first step then box poured the second step on top of it. So this, these steps, which are about this high, were solid concrete. It was, that's why the thing was cracking up. It was basically, as they described, an elephant was sitting on one corner, putting all that weight and pressure on there. So we were having some people tear that up, and we were getting a new concrete uh, patio port. So she went back just to kind of look at the, the men's work um, from the day before, and what had happened was when they were removing this concrete, they had a jackhammer. And since this big concrete bolt thing was these steps right up against the foundation of the house, they broke part of the stone wall and a couple of the cinder blocks in the foundation cracked. So they had to remove those, put new cinder blocks in, and then restone that area. Um, on the base of the house. This is getting somewhere, I promise you. <laughs> so she goes to take a look at it, and there's this these old newspaper, like yellowed newspaper, that is sitting down along the side of the house. This is some of it right here. Okay? So my wife, being someone who likes history, she could tell that this was old. She didn't know where it came from, but she was like, huh. What is this? So she brings it out and lays it on the table. And if you can put that picture up, 
She had just come home from praying. What do I do, God? And the first page she saw, it said, learning how to move. So she's like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? So the workers show up a little bit after that, and she asks, she's like, where did this newspaper come from? And the guy's kind of apologetic, he's like, oh, I'm really sorry. When we were removing the cinder block, the old cinder block, apparently the people who built the house, they had stuffed a newspaper from when the house was built in the early or late 70s, stuffed it in the hole of that cinder block. And so I thought I had thrown all that newspaper away, but this section of the newspaper, I guess I, I didn't get it in the trash. So our home was part of a, a subdivision development. So it was, our house was probably built with a few others at the same time. And the foundation wall cracked on this one cinder block that had a newspaper from 1977 the guys threw the newspaper away, but this one section they forgot to throw away, and that one section she pulls up, and that's what it says, learning how to move. God is in the details. So the, uh, the royal official had this kind of experience. The healing happened at the exact hour that he spoke with Jesus. And so it says he and his whole household believed. They went from believing in the power to believing in the person. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, he sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Jesus spoke and the boy was brought from the edge of death to life. Remember, when we started this, John 20, what were the two things that these signs are for? That you may believe and you may have life. Both of these things happened in this story. But this miracle is, is more than just about this family. See, the power of this miracle is pretty tremendous. This second miracle, the second sign, reveals God's power over all of space and time. It's geographical and it's chronological. Jesus heals the fever from 20 miles away because Jesus' power is unbounded. He is the creator and the author of time and space itself. You know, I went through a long list of miracles in the Old Testament, just trying to see, has, has there been other miracles like this before? And, you know, it's hard to kind of compare one miracle to the other. It's a bit apples and oranges. But very few, if any, are like this. Pretty much all of them are where a person of God speaks or does something, and the miracle happens right there, right there in their location, in their presence. But Jesus is showing he functions on a whole other level. He is God, the source and creator of time and space. He can heal without physically being there, and he can plan for a newspaper to be placed in a specific cinder block to be a message or a sign for someone else 40 years later. These signs have been recorded for you and for me. 
It's easy for us to believe when we see them, but God is trying to give us new sight. He's trying to get us to believe so that we can see. You may have remembered that when my dad preached a few weeks ago. He talked about some see because they believe versus other believing when they see. Believing when we see is temporary. It comes and goes. But if we start with faith, God helps us to see things the way he sees them. Helps us to see what he sees. 2 Corinthians 5.7 is a famous verse. You probably all heard it. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. If we are waiting to see a miracle to believe, we aren't able to walk very far. There's a miracle. Oh, it's gone. There's another miracle. It's going to be a lot of start and stop, right? You're not going to be able to walk very far if you're just believing when you see. But if we start with belief, God gives us the sight to walk. But even Jesus knows this is difficult. It can be a process. Later on in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, it says, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus says, start with the works. If that's, if that's where you need to start, if you're struggling with belief, if you're like the, the man in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief, which I think we all like that at times. But let these signs, let these miracles be a sign to you, a sign for you to believe and have life. So I want to close with one last picture. It was interesting. My wife, after this experience, she obviously framed this newspaper. And so she tried to get as much of the front that she could without, you know, it's obviously very fragile and some of it's ripped and things like that. But she took the whole section that was out and kind of put it behind it, part of it just to fill it up, put it there. And so it was hanging in our house. And my sister looked up and she's like, huh, do you notice what that is in the bottom right corner? The way it was framed, it says, this is the JC. Coincidence? I think not. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for being a God of miracles, a God who comes, changes our circumstances, brings us from death to life. But Lord, if all we trust in are the miracles, our faith is going to go back and forth. It's going to it's going to struggle, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that these miracles, that these signs bring us to a place of greater belief, of greater life in you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is a God of miracles that comes and changes our circumstances, Lord. But I pray that you start to change us from the inside, Lord. Help us to be like Moses who seeks your ways, who seeks a relationship with you, who gets to know you, the Father from whom all blessings flow. Lord, thank you for being our God.
Help us to be your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name.